This is episode 174 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Megan Sutton. She's a speech-language pathologist and international speaker who specializes in aphasia and technology. She designs apps for adult speech therapy through her company, Tactus Therapy, in Vancouver, Canada. Megan has worked in most clinical settings and is a co-author of the stroke recovery book called Healing the Broken Brain. to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Megan. Hi, Teresa. How's it going? Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me on. Yes. All right. So this is a really, really exciting episode today, everybody, because we are branching away from swallowing. So much against my kicking and screaming will because dysphagia is my comfy zone and where I just love to talk about, but we're doing such a huge disservice to the rest of our SLP colleagues who treat so many other conditions than just dysphagia. And I know so many other wonderful SLPs out there in the world that I'd be remiss to not invite them onto the podcast. So today we have the wonderful Megan Sutton. I'm sure most of you know her and I'll let her tell you a little bit about herself. So who are you, Megan? Well, I am Megan Sutton. Um, I am a speech-language pathologist. I live near Vancouver in Canada. Um, I trained in the U.S. um, at Boston University, and I have worked in a variety of settings. My passion is inpatient rehab. That's really where uh, I enjoyed working most, and it was there that I started developing app for people with aphasia, and then that kind of took off, and now I am a full-time app developer uh, with Tactus Therapy, which is my company. Isn't that just crazy to say? (laughs) Yeah. I'm a full-time app developer. That's awesome. All right. So we are going to just dive into things aphasia today, and I think I just, I want to preface this, um, you know, like I said, by saying that I really love all things dysphagia. I have gone down this insane dysphagia rabbit hole in the last seven, eight years, and usually with you know, the guests that we bring on, I can ask questions because I know the topic area very well, but I will say, I do not know aphasia very well, and I will admit it, and I I don't want to say I regret it, but I do wish that I kept up with other areas of medical SLP as much as I did with or do with dysphagia. So this is my uh, open and honest declaration, and <laughs> hoping that I can, you know, help to expand my horizons as well, too. So... Yeah, where do you where do you want to start, Megan? You know, I've gone down the aphasia rabbit hole, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah. I try to keep up a little bit with dysphagia and knowing what's going on in the swallowing world. But I think any time that you specialize, you do, you know, by the nature of it, lose track of all the other areas of practice. So I've tried to um, stay up with all the communication areas, with cognition, with even dysarthria and apraxia, trying to at least stay in a communication bubble. But 
that's where I'm happiest. And I have the privilege of being able to do that with the work that I do. Whereas a lot of our SLP colleagues out there have to see whoever comes through the door. So they have to keep up with everything. And that can be so overwhelming. So I think they look to experts like us who do you know, have that very specialized knowledge for us to share it with them so that at least they're getting a little bit of everything. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. All right. How, how did you become interested in aphasia? How did you become or go down the aphasia rabbit hole, we'll say? Yeah, um, so aphasia is what got me interested in speech pathology. Awesome. It was probably my junior year uh, of my undergrad at Rutgers, and I was taking a psychology of language class. And the professor put on this video of someone with aphasia. And it was the first time I had ever seen or heard of it. And I looked at that person struggling to communicate. Like you could just tell they knew what they wanted to say, but they couldn't get it out. And I sat there and I was like, oh my God, I have to help these people. And it was like then and there that I decided that was going to be my career. Awesome. And because I was working in technology at the time, I was working in the, the college computer lab. I was like, there's got to be a way for computers or technology to help. And so I thought I would probably go into AAC because that's kind of the way technology was helping people communicate. And then I sort of forgot about that, worked my career for a while, still loved working with aphasia. Like that was, that was um, what I really got passionate about. And then it wasn't until the iPad came along that I saw a new opportunity for technology to help with therapy. Awesome. So when I was working in inpatient rehab and I was working with my patients with aphasia, Honestly, I, I really didn't know what I was doing, right? Yes. <laughs> it was, I, I started the job. There were workbooks in the, the therapy cabinet. I pulled them out. I did them with people. You know, I'd give them strategies, give them help, whatever. Uh, but it was actually when I went to a two-day course at the, um, it was the Rehab Institute of Chicago, now known as the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, where I learned about all these evidence-based treatments for aphasia like Orla and response elaboration training. And it just blew my mind because I'd never heard of these. And I was like, I went to a good grad school. Like, why didn't they teach yeah, me this? Yeah. Um, right, right. But I learned so much about assessment and the theory of aphasia in grad school. I didn't learn how to treat it. So I went back to work and I started using these techniques and they, they worked amazingly well. Like my patients were making so much progress. So that's one of the things that sort of fuels me now is that feeling of like, why didn't I know this? I don't want anyone else to go through that. So that's why I sort of publish these how-to guides and bring light onto some of these evidence-based techniques. But even then, um, my patients were working with me and they wanted more, right? Like I'd, I'd work with them for an hour and then they'd be like, what next? What next? And I could give them workbook pages, but they couldn't do them on their own. And that's really what got me interested in the technology and developing apps because I needed them to have a way of doing that drill and practice that was going to change their brains on their own. So I called up my friend, Ben, who was a, a computer programmer with a video game company, and uh, we founded Tactus Therapy and we started producing apps and we have over 20 titles now. Amazing. Amazing. I love that story, Megan. Let's let's reverse a little bit. So for some some of the younger clinicians, some clinicians that don't really know, it's always a hot topic of workbooks. And that's really what we are unfortunately drilled to use in grad school and, you know, print off these worksheets, print off these series of books. These are going to be your best friends. And we won't get into the legality of copywriting because that's illegal to do that to begin with. But give me your spiel on workbooks. So I 
I'm not totally anti-workbook. I think there is a place for workbooks because they provide some stimuli that we can use to teach strategies or to practice strategies or to even, you know, drill certain, you know, word finding techniques, things like that. But it's this over-reliance on workbooks that's the problem because we lose sight of what the client's actual goal is. Their goal isn't to be able to complete workbook pages, right? Their goal is something else out in life that we need to help them do. And so we have to think about the goals first, and then we can pick treatment methods or approaches that help them reach that goal. And I, I see this too. It's not just workbooks. Some people will be really into a technique called VNEST, verb network strengthening. And they'll just say, well, I'm using VNEST with this person. And I'll say, well, why? Like, what is your end goal? The goal isn't to use VNEST. The goal isn't to use the workbook, right? So I'm very goal focused. What are we helping this person to do? And then how are we going to help them get there? And if workbooks play a part in that, then they do. But that's not going to be our only thing. We're not going to only play games or only use workbooks. We really need to focus on those clients' goals. Yeah. And like I said, since I'm so dysphagia driven, I'm going to equate that to doing oral motor exercises for swallowing. It's like, why are we doing them? Well, because that's what we've always done. Well, but what does it do for the patient's swallow? So I, I love that you said that, Megan, because it's just really, it's, it's functional. It's getting the functional outcomes that the patients need. So. Right. Yeah. And I think with aphasia treatment, we've seen, you know, it sort of came out of more of an educational model and workbooks are sort of, you know, they're used a lot in schools, worksheets, things like that. And then we transitioned into more of a psycholinguistic model where we were really looking at how language works in the brain and trying to target that. So we got a lot of treatments out of that move that don't always generalize that well, but they they at least have a good rationale of what we're targeting. And now we're into more of the psychosocial model where we're really looking at function and participation. And, you know, we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. You know, we, we all of these things got us to where we are and they all have value. We just need to combine them in the right ways and take the best bits of, of our rich history of therapy uh, to help our patients. Awesome. So the philosophy that a lot of clinicians are following now is the life participation approach to aphasia. And the LPAA um, came about sort of a, with a frustration with the medical model that we were just going to cure the language impairment and really just focus on that. And that's sort of what those workbooks target. But people were seeing, these, these incredible speech pathologists were seeing that their patients had a life beyond the hospital and their impairments weren't necessarily getting better, but we were just dropping those people from treatment. And there was so much more that we could do for them. So the life participation approach position statement came out in about 2000, so over 20 years ago now. Um, and that really defined the approach. It's more of a philosophy of treatment that we can treat the impairment, but we can also treat the environment, we can train communication partners, and we can address the personal factors in our patient, things like confidence, so that they can take those skills that they have and really shine in a, in a much more powerful way and participate in their lives. It's totally fascinating. I did not know that this is where all of this came from. So it includes things like treating the family of the person, making changes to the communication environment, and treating aphasia beyond the initial onset. So to paraphrase Dr. Simmons Mackey, uh, one of the founders of it, 
what good is being able to say a complete sentence if you don't have the confidence to try? And what I love about this philosophy is that it totally fits with the move toward more client-centered care and respects the patient and family's goals and values. So it gives us somewhere to go when we run up against language skills that don't really seem to budge. We can always target another area of the WHO ICF besides the impairment. And we can measure progress on increasing participation in life, even if something like the mean length of utterance stays the same. And I also love about the LPAA is that it isn't anti-impairment. What good is a supportive environment if you don't have the communication skills to interact with it? We need both. So we should absolutely restore communication skills as best we can. But we just need to do so with the goal of making those skills really functional. So, so talk to me. I'm super intrigued by this. I really like this. I love this concept. Talk to me a little bit about what this looks like. So do you, do you bring in a caregiver during the session or is it like that structured at first or how does that look? Yeah, so uh, you absolutely can. Uh, training the communication partners is a huge part of it. One of my favorite treatments is the um, SCA or Supported Conversation with Aphasia that comes out of the Aphasia Institute in Toronto. And this is a treatment that is just training the communication partners like training them to write keywords as they speak, to use pictures as supports, to provide written options and have the person with aphasia point to their answer. These seem like really simple common sense things, but they're not. You actually need to train people to do this. And when you do it right, you reveal the competence of the person with aphasia and they don't have to do anything differently. They just interact with you and suddenly you can see, oh, yeah, they are understanding or, you know, they're able to express themselves when I do something differently. And so I think that's that should be our go to treatment for anyone with severe aphasia or, you know, who's unable to express themselves early on, because that gives them the ramp. Right. When we see people with physical disabilities who are using wheelchairs, we provide ramps so that they can get into and out of buildings. So they're still participating in their life. That doesn't mean we stop working on walking skills. It just means that we have a way of doing it now while we work on doing it better later. And I think our therapy should be like that too. Like by all means, get somebody to communicate now, even if you're not changing them. And then you have the time and space to work on improving those skills and they're so much more motivated and engaged because they're not just frustrated that they can't get their message out. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So do you, do you have an app specifically for this life participation approach? No, not exactly because it's a philosophy. The LPAA is a philosophy um, that includes all kinds of other treatments. So the, the sort of ways that I've incorporated it into the apps is that we um, in our language therapy apps, you can add your own pictures. So if you want to work on saying your husband's name or your children's names, you can put in their pictures and names and work on those. You don't have to work on apple and banana if those aren't important to you. We uh, let you customize and pick which words you want to work on. But we're still working at that impairment level, usually with the apps. There is one app that's called Conversation Therapy that just lets people practice talking. There's questions, prompts. And that's the one I use when I'm training a partner on how to communicate so that we can ask these questions and I'll show them. 
If you give them written choices, can they get more out? If you provide this sort of support, what kind of answer do you get? And I like about that, that it's back and forth because communication is a two-way thing, right? I hate when our, our work with aphasia patients just seems like constant quizzing, right? We should be getting to know the person, letting them tell their stories, not just what is this? What is this? What is this? Right? Because that, that's not fun for anyone. Right. And just a quick word from one of our wonderful sponsors, Patcom Medical. Are you trying to start a fees program at your facility or are you thinking about going out on your own with bulk fees? Here are the two simple steps you should take right away. Number one, listen to episode 164 of the Solier Pride podcast, where I speak with Christoph from Patcom Medical about purchasing fees equipment. Step two, get in touch with Patcom as they will assist you based on your individual needs. You can reach them at info at patcommedical.com. That's info at P-A-T-C-O-M. M-E-D-I-C-A-L.com or go to patcommedical.com for more information. Now back to the episode. Right. I think we get too hung up on the word functional, meaning like an ADL, an activity of daily living or something that people have to do to get through the day. So at the best of times, we might work on functional things like ordering coffees or making phone calls with our patients with aphasia. And that's great. But at the worst of times, we might have them tell us the steps in brushing their teeth because we think that's functional. Well, brushing your teeth is functional. Talking about it, not really um, something we need to do. So this is where I feel like we need to rethink what functional communication really is. So maybe it's asking for help or thanking someone for giving you help. Perhaps it's telling someone about your past stories from work or travels. Um, it could be telling a joke or giving advice or debating an issue in the news. Because people talk for all kinds of reasons that don't accomplish a physical task. We're social creatures, right? Communication is what connects us to one another. It's how we reveal who we are and how we form relationships. So when you lose your ability to communicate, it can lead to an actual loss of identity, Right? You can't tell people about who you are and what you believe. It leads to loss of friendships and a profound sense of isolation and loneliness. So I think we can all see that now that we've been a bit more socially isolated uh, during this pandemic. So I would encourage the SLPs out there to challenge themselves to write more goals that are focused on the interactional aspects of language, not just the transactional ones. So that, that contrast between interaction and transaction is an important one. So writing goals around starting conversations with your table, with the person's table mates, or telling their stroke story, or sharing their life experiences, these are all really functional goals. Um, so it doesn't always feel like you're doing therapy when you're engaged in meaningful practice like this. You're going to be fascinated by your patient's stories. You're going to Sometimes you'll feel like you're getting more out of it than they are, but that's because it's meaningful, right? You're, um, you're getting greater satisfaction out of your work. They're getting greater satisfaction out of therapy. The real work then is just figuring out how you're going to measure that and, uh, and report it to, uh, to make sure that you keep your administration happy. You know, I, I love that you said that, Megan. I, my, honest, my first, first patient in grad school, my first patient that I had by myself independently I felt this way with, I just, I had such a connection with him off the bat and it almost felt like our, 
50 minute sessions flew by and I'm like, Oh my gosh, but we didn't do any of these activities I prepared. Like we literally just talked for 50 minutes and, you know, I was like frantic self-conscious grad student. And I would say to him at the end, like, Oh my gosh, we never even got to our activities. Like my supervisor is going to kill me. And he was like, Teresa, we had such a meaningful conversation. Like I've been able to get words out with you that I have not, you know, I've not, would not have felt comfortable saying in another setting, but I do with you. And that really, you know, now learning more about the life participation approach and things like I, I, I'm proud of myself for that. But, but it's, it's really true. Like it, it's so funny looking back now that I thought I was this horrible clinician that I didn't get to my workbook activities. But we really did have such meaningful conversations. And what's so funny is he still emails me to this day. Like you know, I'm still wow. keeping up on my things, and it's been 13 years since I since I saw the man. But. Um, it's just, it can have just such a profound impact. Like you said, that's fantastic. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, we have to get over that feeling of like, Oh, I didn't do anything. Like, of yeah, course yeah. you did something. We are skilled professionals and the way that we interact with people is just supporting them in a way that we can really just let them reveal their intelligence, right. In a way that they don't get out in the world. So, you know, hopefully we can use that to build their confidence so that they can take those skills that we've given them and go out and transfer those to new environments and new partners so that they don't come to rely on us as the only people they can talk with. But that is meaningful and important work. And that doesn't happen when you've got a stack of worksheets you're trying to get through. No, no. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad I was a defiant grad student and didn't, you know, <laughs> rely on my, my planned agenda. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, so let me ask you, Megan, because I know we do get we, a lot of our listeners work in acute care. And, you know, I think we'd be um, remiss to talk about that if we didn't talk about that a little bit. Although I know that a lot of the apps that you do are strictly for rehab and kind of the longer journey, but maybe I'm totally wrong and off base here. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so acute care is tricky uh, because there isn't usually a lot of time for aphasia therapy. The environment isn't really conducive to it. Um, and we're so worried about swallowing, right? Um, so acute care isn't really where we're going to sit down and get into VNEST or, you know, any of these uh, treatments, but there is a lot that we can do in acute care um, as SLPs. And I think the first is to look at the communication environment and see what you can do to make it more aphasia friendly. And the great thing about making an environment more aphasia friendly is that it also makes it more accessible for people who don't speak English. It makes it more accessible for people with dementia, for people with low literacy. So just making, like having picture symbols places, um, making it clear, having picture supported educational tools is one thing that we can do. Another thing that we can do is to educate the staff to give trainings and in-services about supported communication so that Everyone is prepared to write keywords and to use visuals and knows how to get people's messages in and out and verified. And so there are there's a free training about SCA on the Aphasia Institute website, and you can make that part of perhaps a, a mandatory training for new employees or an in-service that you give to your staff on your stroke unit or in your acute care hospital. Awesome. And I think in acute care, the most important job that we have is just to make sure the right referrals get made so that people with aphasia don't get lost in the system. Make sure they get referred to rehab. Make sure they go on to the next level of care. 
and provide the patient and family with written education materials. So many people get to rehab or beyond, even get discharged, and say they've never heard the word aphasia. And I'm sure they have. I'm sure somebody told them. I hope somebody told them. Uh, But if we provide them with that written, printed information, then they have it. And if they're not ready to read it or deal with it in acute care, at least they have it later. And knowing that word aphasia means that they can go online and they can Google it and find out about it. And not only do they find out what aphasia is, they can find support groups, they can find apps, they can find the information they need to deal with it. So I'd say that's probably the most important thing. Get those referrals made and give the printed information with the word aphasia. Yeah. I I love what you said in the beginning too, about just getting pictures just to support all different types of learners. I think it's it's very valuable. I'm always so impressed when I go into different facilities and you see that they've really made that extra effort to do things like that. And then you go in other facilities and they have nothing like that. So um, for anybody with any sort of language or speech impairment, it's so helpful. Not, not even an impairment, yeah. Hospitals are really confusing places, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, there's so many signs. Um, and people with aphasia, usually, you know, they come in with a stroke and they, they have aphasia for the first time, but they also go back out into the community and might come in for a different reason. They might come in for outpatient therapy or because, you know, they have a new pneumonia or heart condition. So having that communicatively accessible environment is really important. There's actually a free tool on the Aphasia Institute website. I feel like I'm, I'm plugging them a lot today, but I'm really impressed with what they're doing. Uh, it's called the CAMS, and it's a measurement, a way to measure how communic- communicatively accessible your facility is. Oh, cool. Yeah. I haven't used it myself, but I know it's there. And uh, yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's, thank you for sharing that, Megan. That sounds like an awesome tool. Would it, so, like, if you were working with someone with aphasia, what would be... Where do you feel your weakest? Like, where do you think people who specialize in swallowing? You, you know, I think everywhere. I don't, you don't know what you don't know. You know, I think that's the, the hardest part. And I guess swallowing is very not, it's not cookbook by any means. It's not straightforward by, by any means. But there's, there's kind of a specific path that you take as far as, you know, doing a, a CSE, doing an instrumental and moving into treatment. Is there sort of like a, a, a recipe for aphasia? Or is it, you know, I, I almost feel like, like I talked about that conversation I had with my, my grad school buddy, I was just throwing spaghetti at the wall to get him to interact. And, and I guess that, that's kind of my question is like, to me, I feel like aphasia therapy is let's just throw anything at the wall and see what sticks or am I totally off base? So <laughs> um, I don't think I'd describe it like that. Okay, yeah, let's not use my words, but that, that's... <laughs> Um, so I think what you were doing there was just diagnostic therapy, Yeah, yeah. right? You were, you were playing with some things. You were trying to see what worked and I do a lot of diagnostic therapy. So I don't like spending a lot of time on formal assessments. I can pick up what I need to know about a person fairly quickly. And then what I want to spend my time doing is figuring out what helps them. What's too much help. What's not helpful so that we can practice certain skills with just the right amount of help to build independence. So if you're looking for a a recipe for aphasia therapy, you know, I, I think the first thing is to get to know your patient, right? Step one, get to know them, build rapport. You are two human beings, you are forming a relationship, and the strength of that relationship has been shown to really have a, a 
a powerful influence on the results you're going to get out of that treatment. People do not work that hard with people they don't like, right? So spend that time building rapport, establishing that relationship and building trust. That person has to believe that you know what you're doing and that you're going to help them and that you have their best interest in mind. So that's step one. Step two might be doing an assessment. A lot of people start off with an assessment. I think that's good if you don't know that much about the person and their abilities. Um, So maybe in inpatient rehab, that's where you'd start. In outpatient, I think you probably want to flip that and start with the goals. What's hard for you? What would you like to be able to do? Let's lay out those goals, set those goals, and then we can use our assessment to figure out that person's strengths and weaknesses for how we're going to meet those goals. So assessment and goals kind of come next. What I would encourage people not to do, what, what I used to do, so the, the mistake I used to make was to give an assessment, see what the person got wrong, and then write goals so that they get those questions right. You know? Not wrong. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you couldn't repeat sentences? Let's write a goal around repeating sentences. Yeah. Uh, Whereas the assessment is just telling you that they have an impairment in repetition, whether or not we work on that is going to depend on what the goal is. So if um, if their goal is to be a better reader, we don't work on that. So don't set your goals based on the test. Actually set your goals with your client and their family, right? There's lots of picture support tools we can use. There's lots of checklists that we can use. Lots of tools out there to help them be involved in setting their own goals, You should be able to ask your patient what their goals are, and they should at least have some memory of having set some with you if they can't say them exactly. But I used to just write the goals myself based on the test. And now I know that that's not best practice. Yeah. Yeah. I I love that you said that, Megan. I was recently in a, a therapy evaluation for my son with an OT. And that was one of the first things she said. She was like, look, what, what do you, what can I help you guys best with? Obviously, there's a bunch of different things we can work on. You also have a one-year-old at home. What will make your life easier if we can master? And I felt like that was just like the golden question. I was like, oh my gosh, if we can do this and this, my life will be exponentially easier. And she's like, great. So we won't work on zippers, you know, like we, and I was like, please, no, don't. Thank you. (laughs) So it was, I just, I loved that conversation right off the bat because I just felt like we were a team from the get-go. And she's like, I'm still going to do this formal evaluation, but that gives me so much of an idea of where you want to head with therapy and things like that. And I was like, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. So. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And that's how it should be working. Yeah. Um, and I know sometimes we get those clients who just say, I want to talk again, or, you know, I just want to be back to normal. So then it takes our skills to sort of figure out, well, what does normal look like to you? What are the steps in getting back to normal? What's a good first step? And once we have those goals, then, as I said, we can find the treatment approaches that show that they might be able to help us get there. You know, so maybe it's scripting therapy so that somebody can order their coffee at Starbucks. Maybe it's um, AAC. Maybe it's a combination of things. But then we pick our approaches. And then you get into this area where you do have a bit more of a recipe. But I'll say this about recipes. I love them. They opened my my eyes uh, to what was possible. Reading the literature, there's so many. They all have acronyms, you know, or cool names. And and I've written a lot of step-by-step guides to them. But what I've realized in going through those is that they're recipes like you'd find for dinner, 
right? Like you, you see what's on available online, you read through the comments and you're like, mm, I'm going to tweak this or I'm going to leave the garlic out or, you know, I'm, I'm going to take this person's recommendation to add this. So you're the chef when you're following a recipe, which means you don't have to follow the recipe exactly. You have to find those critical elements and adapt it to your style and to the patient's needs. Just because a, a treatment was done a certain way, that was for the research, right? Research has to be regimented. It has to be delivered the same to every person. So that's why they have such strict steps. But as clinicians, we can be more, more artists, you know, and sort of mix and match and, and do what is working for our patient. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. love that so much. I had a, my son had a PT um, last summer and a great, great guy. And he said, you know, our, our goal is to make potatoes, but we can decide, do we want to make mashed potatoes? Do we want to make sweet potatoes? Do we want to make garlic potatoes? And my husband was like, I'm so lost with this analogy. And I was like, I love this analogy. Like, keep going. I totally get it. <laughs> so I, I totally knew what he meant. And my husband was just like, where was he going with the potatoes? I was like, no, no, just forget the potatoes. But that's what he meant was that, you know, we're going to, our goal is really, we have the end goal in mind, but we're going to try a few different things and tweak some things along the way. And, and I, I really appreciated that metaphor because I understood it very clearly. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, what do you think, Megan, here? Any, any final thoughts, I guess, for people that, you know, are listening and, you know, you've totally sold them that aphasia is the, the best thing to treat as a speech pathologist. Where can where can people go to learn more? You mentioned the, the Aphasia yes. Institute. Yeah. Did I say that right? Um, so one of the organizations that I'm involved with is called Aphasia Access, and they are an organization that okay. supports clinicians who are involved in the life participation approach. So that's a really good awesome. place to go for, they have tons of online events, conferences, online resources, if you're interested in the LPAA. Another place that I get a lot of education from is ANCDS which is the Academy of Neurological Communication Disorders and Sciences, I think. Sure, um, we'll, we'll go with that. Sorry if we're wrong, yeah. people. Um, <laughs> and they have some good webinars, and they're, um, a lot of great researchers are a part of that, and they have a conference the, usually the day before ASHA. So I always okay. fly in a day early for that conference. There are some amazing new textbooks about aphasia, uh, one that I'm loving right now is called Aphasia Rehabilitation Clinical Challenges. And it goes through all those really hard things like cool. uh, fluent aphasia or perseverations, you know, the, the things that really um, get in the way. And then honestly, I, I volunteer with an organization called ARC, which is the Aphasia Recovery Connection. And it's an online group for people with aphasia and their families. And I would encourage speech pathologists to join that group and then shut up. <laughs> like you don't have to answer every question, just watch and learn. Because these are people living with aphasia and the challenges they've faced and the challenges they're facing now and the frustrations these families are having. We don't have to go there and solve all their problems. We just need to know what these problems are to make sure that we aren't replicating these mistakes in our own treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Now, every now and then you can help people out, of course, but um, I think too often we don't sit back and listen enough. So that's one tip I have, because you learn so much just listening to families dealing with aphasia. Uh, and then there's a great website. Uh, it's the Aphasia Rehab Pathway, and that's out of Australia. And they've just done a 
brilliant job of outlining all of the aphasia best practices. So th those are my go-to resources. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, share with us, share with us a, a, a research article or, or a review article or anything that really has had a major impact on your clinical practice. So the most powerful article for me, I'm going to be totally selfish here, is Stark and Warburton from 2018 that's improved language and chronic aphasia after self-delivered iPad speech therapy. And this article changed my world because it was an independent study that was done on my language therapy app. So I have this standing policy that any researcher contacts me and wants to research our apps, I give them free copies. So yep. this is what happened. Somebody contacted me. I was like, sure, here you go. I had no idea what the researcher was going to do with the app until the results came out. And what this study found was that people with chronic aphasia who used my language therapy app for 20 minutes a day for four weeks made significant improvements. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, I just had and chills, Megan. Oh, yay. They had seriously no other direction or supervision. They were shown how to use the app once, sent home, and told to use it at least 20 minutes a day. So there's four different parts of this app. They could use whichever parts. Some people had people helping them, some didn't. So I'm someone who's always doubting myself. And seeing the results of this study was so validating. Because not only did it speak to the power of the app's design and the technology, but also to the ability that the brain actually can change years after a stroke. And if people want to get better at something, they just have to start by doing it and then keep doing it. Oh, I love that. So knowing that my app and other apps, of course, are effective at helping to restore lost abilities through this drill-based practice and exercise just completely freed me up to think about my sessions differently. So now that I know that that drill and practice using the app is effective at improving those impairment skills, I can focus my time with my patients on the things that technology can't do. So I can have more of those really meaningful conversations. I can spend my time training someone how to use that home program, like making sure they're actually able to do it all by themselves. And then I can spend my time on setting goals or training their partner. And that just makes me feel like I'm really using my brain and my abilities so much more satisfyingly in my sessions. And then I outsource all that boring, repetitive drill to the technology. And so that's why that article uh, is the one I wanted to talk about. Not because it was groundbreaking necessarily in the field, but there is a growing body of literature about the power of computer-delivered treatment and how even sometimes delivering a treatment via computer can be just as effective as it can with a clinician. And at first I was like, ooh, are we going to be out of jobs? But absolutely not. Like, let's let the computers do those things. And we have so much else right, to work on. Right. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. Thank you for sharing that, Megan. Oh, you're welcome. That's amazing. Do you have any, any final thoughts you want to share? So one of the things I love about this idea of swallow your pride is that we've all done things that aren't best practice, right? We've all felt our way through this field trying to do what's right for our clients when we don't really know. And that's the same with aphasia and, and swallowing and you know every aspect. So I think it's just so important that we keep learning and keep exploring and that we don't hold on to those mistakes 
that we don't say, oh, well, I've always used workbooks. That must be the right thing to do, that we open our eyes and seek out the new information. And maybe 20 years from now, we'll look back on what we're doing now and be like, oh, I can't believe I did it that way. But that's what's so exciting about our field is that it does keep evolving. We're learning new things all the time. So if we can just, you know, keep looking for those better ways to help, going with our gut, blending that with the research, and really focusing on that human connection that we have with that person across the table from us or across the computer screen, it, it's going to work out. I love that. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that, Megan. I, I love that. I love that so, so much. I think that's so reassuring to a lot of people, um, especially with, with your apps and things like that. It's like, is this stuff going to just replace us? And it's like, no, they're like, nothing can replace human interaction. You know, nothing no one has invented that yet, but um, yeah, know, Lord knows if Elon Musk will. Yeah, who knows if Elon Musk will get into our brains and do something like that? But, but yeah, um, no, I, I just I love your your perspective on let the app do do what it can and and reserve our human interaction for when that's necessary. So thank you so much. This has been such an awesome conversation. Oh, it's been so much fun. And you know, I will always say, if there's a cure for aphasia, if that puts me out of a job and I need to find something else. Please bring it on. Um, I'm all for that. But um, until that time, we've got a lot of work to do. And uh, I so appreciate the chance to share this information with others who may not feel as comfortable treating aphasia. Yeah, awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Megan. Thank you. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.